How y'all doing that? So I'd like to thank y'all for stopping by for another episode of this Removing the Illusion Pod Talk here, yeah. And listen here. Now y'all know before we get started, all they tell y'all what I'm smoking on. And tonight, I'm smoking on this Illusiano Epernay Series 2009. Now here lately, I've been really enjoying these Illusion. Ever since I seen that little talk by the guy who make these things here, got a good education. I ain't gonna say too much because I got a little pie talk coming up later with this guy giving us little insights on how these Illusion cigars are made and how he crap this crap. But y'all know I gotta tell y'all what these people say first before what I before I, what I tell y'all about this little stick here. Now what these folks are saying, they say this Illusion Epernay Series 2009. This mellow beauty is love at first sight. If this Cafe Rosado wrapper which hugs Nicaraguan Creole 98 and Cordio 98 long fillers. This is a truly classic Nicaraguan cigar with notes of toasted nuts, a slight spice, and cream. Good to the last puff and totally fulfilling. Once you try the cigar, there's no looking back. Now this Epernay 2009, now this thing here received a top 25 of Cigar of the Year honors and received an impressive 94 rating, noting solidly rolled and topped with a three sim cap, this dark brown cigar has an opalette draw that shows an earthly, leafy smoke and polished layer. I'm getting my little notes here. Polished layers, a gingerbread, cinema, and orange peel, all built into a beautiful, long, caramel finish. A sophisticated and balanced cigar. Wow. Now, let me tell y'all something. Now, this was, to me, I'm going to give y'all my little opinion here. This was a really, really good stick. Now, to me, it was a medium, anywhere between uh, a medium and right before you get to a full. You see what I'm saying? Not between a medium and a full, but just right before you get to a full. Really good cigar. I mean, I didn't taste all them brown notes and gingerbread and cinnamon, orange peels and all that kind of stuff. But I did taste a real smooth cigar. And like I tell y'all all the time, I'm not no uh, cigar aficionado. You know, I'm still a rookie in this here game, but I can tell y'all, this is a good, smooth stick. And usually, you know, anywhere from a medium to a full body, usually sometimes, you know, I, you know, I get a little, I get a little dazed a little bit. But this thing here was very smooth. Actually, all these little Lugianos that I've been trying out here lately has been really, really good sticks. So when y'all get online or stop by your, your neighborhood cigar, uh, cigar spot, Y'all look for this Illusion Epernay Series 2009. It's a really good stick. I highly recommend. Matter of fact, I highly recommend anything by Illusion. I'll tell you the truth. These are some really, really good sticks. And if you can't find it at your local cigar spot, you know, y'all go on CI or Holtz or somewhere online where you can buy your little sticks in both to fill up your humidor. But always support your local cigar spot first, especially these days in these economies. You know what I mean? So tonight, and man, I got man, I to talk for y'all tonight. Tonight, we're going to take a look, another look at Thomas Sowell. It's a book that really inspired me. One of his book is called Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Man, let me tell you something. This book really changed my eye on a lot of things. Like I tell y'all, I like to listen to folks that got a little information do their research. Just don't like to talk to them talking heads. People just regurgitating what somebody else said. Matter of fact, here lately, what came to my mind, why it's such a good timing to educate some folks on slavery is that gal Donna, whatever her name is, from the DNC. I guess they had their little convention, and uh, somebody asked her a question. And matter of fact, this was that same black lady Donna who got tied up in that Hillary Clinton thing with Bernie Sanders. You know when he was trying to oust Bernie Sanders, but uh, she made a statement 
about slavery, about her people 400 years being in slavery. Now, what thing that I'm kind of kind of upset about here lately is that how the word slavery and black slavery has been weaponized by the DNC. How racism has been weaponized by the DNC. This is very alarming to me. And when you got people like, you know, Donna and other people today hollering about racism 400 years, man, you ain't been in no slavery 400 years. You've been free, at least I know for, I'm 57 years old, at least for 57 years that I know you've been free. How 400 years ago you was enslaved to your people? See, some of them folks who be pairing this stuff can't even tell you who their ancestor was. Who was your ancestor? You're talking about you've been enslaved. You ain't been in no slavery for free. But look, I'm not going to go on no tangent right now because this little talk here by Thomas, by Thomas Sowell is going to really enlighten a lot of folks on slavery. Slavery ain't nothing unique to, you know, to America or to, or to black folks here in this country. Slavery ain't unique. Every race has been enslaved. Every race. Ain't nothing unique about it. But the thing about it is, is how you come out of it. That's what's important. You know, how you come out as far as your ancestors, you know, your ancestors who was in slavery. How are you benefiting, you know, from their suffering? And I'm not talking about just black folks, about any race that's been in, in slavery. So before I get to run in my mouth and give everything away, this little talk here by Thomas Sowell, his uh, expert, excerpt from his book, Black Liberals, I mean, I mean, uh, Black Rednecks and White Liberals, this is probably going to be about two or three hours. So it's going to be maybe a two, maybe a three part series. But I want y'all to listen to this thing here and really learn about slavery, especially you black folks out there. If any of y'all listen, learn about slavery. Stop letting slavery be used as a weapon to keep you in your mind uh, uh, stagnant in this society. You know, there's so much I want to say, but. I shouldn't say it all right now, but right now what we're going to do is we're going to get off into an excerpt from Thomas Sowell's book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. And while y'all listen to this thing here, like I say, it's going to be a two, maybe three part series. I highly recommend before you start listening to two or three, you listen to one first, then you go to two, then you go to three. That means you, you get the content in order instead of out of order. You know what I mean? So look, I'm going to kick back here with my Illusion Epine Series 2009. I'm going to smoke on this little thing here while y'all take a listen to this. All right? And I'm going to come back and catch up with y'all on the flip side. All right now. Black Liberals, I mean Black Rednecks and White Liberals by Thomas Sowell. Okay? Slavery was an evil of greater scope and magnitude than most people imagine. And as a result, its place in history is radically different from the way it is usually portrayed. Mention slavery, and immediately the image that arises is that of Africans and their descendants, enslaved by Europeans and their descendants in the southern United States, or at most, Africans enslaved by Europeans in the Western Hemisphere. No other historic horror is so narrowly construed. No one thinks of war, famine, or decimating epidemics in such localized terms. These are afflictions that have been suffered by the entire human race all over the planet, and so was slavery. Had slavery been limited to one race in one country during three centuries, its tragedies would not have been one-tenth the magnitude that they were in fact. Why this provincial view of a worldwide evil? Often, it is those who are most critical of a Eurocentric view of the world 
who are most Eurocentric when it comes to the evils and failings of the human race. Why would anyone wish to arbitrarily understate an evil that plagued mankind for thousands of years, unless it was not this evil itself that was the real concern, but rather the present-day uses of that historic evil? Clearly, the ability to score ideological points against American society or Western civilization, or to induce guilt and thereby extract benefits from the white population today, are greatly enhanced by making enslavement appear to be a peculiarly American or a peculiarly white crime. This explanation is also consistent with the otherwise inexplicable contrast between the fiery rhetoric about past slavery in the United States, used by those who pass over in utter silence the traumas of slavery that still exist in Mauritania, the Sudan, and parts of Nigeria and Benin. Why so much more concerned for dead people who are now beyond our help than for living human beings suffering the burdens and humiliations of slavery today? Why does a verbal picture of the abuses of slaves in centuries past arouse far more response than contemporary photographs of present-day slaves in Time magazine, the New York Times, or the National Geographic? It takes no more research than a trip to almost any public library or college library to show the incredibly lopsided coverage of slavery in the United States or in the Western Hemisphere as compared to the meager writings on the even larger number of Africans enslaved in the Islamic countries of the Middle East and North Africa, not to mention the vast numbers of Europeans also enslaved in centuries past in the Islamic world and within Europe itself. At least a million Europeans were enslaved by North African pirates alone from 1500 to 1800. And some European slaves were still being sold on the auction block in Egypt, years after the Emancipation Proclamation freed blacks in the United States. Indeed, an Anglo-Egyptian treaty of August 4, 1877, prohibited the continued sale of white slaves after August 3, 1885, as well as prohibiting the import and export of Sudanese and Abyssinian slaves. During the Middle Ages, Slavs were so widely used as slaves in both Europe and the Islamic world that the very word slave derived from the word for Slav, not only in English, but also in other European languages, as well as in Arabic. Nor have Asians or Polynesians been exempt from either being enslaved or enslaving others. China, in centuries past, has been described as one of the largest and most comprehensive markets for the exchange of human beings in the world. Slavery was also common in India, where it has been estimated that there were more slaves than in the entire Western Hemisphere, and where the original thugs kidnapped children for the purpose of enslavement. In some of the cities of Southeast Asia, slaves were a majority of the population. Slavery was also an established institution in the Western Hemisphere, before Columbus's ships ever appeared on the horizon. The Ottoman Empire regularly enslaved a percentage of the young boys from the Balkans, converted them to Islam, and assigned them to various duties in the civil or military establishment. Race and Slavery The instrumental use of the history of slavery today also underlies the claim that slavery grew out of racism. For most of its long history, which includes most of the history of the human race, slavery was largely not the enslavement of racially different people, for the simple reason that only in recent centuries has either the technology or the wealth existed to go to another continent to get slaves and transport them en masse across an ocean. People were enslaved because they were vulnerable, not because of how they looked. 
The peoples of the Balkans were enslaved by fellow Europeans, as well as by the peoples of the Middle East, for at least six centuries before the first African was brought to the Western Hemisphere. Before the modern era, by and large, Europeans enslaved other Europeans, Asians enslaved other Asians, Africans enslaved other Africans, and the indigenous peoples of the Western Hemisphere enslaved other indigenous peoples of the Western Hemisphere. Slavery was not based on race, much less on theories about race. Only relatively late in history did enslavement across racial lines occur on such a scale as to promote an ideology of racism that outlasted the institution of slavery itself. Wherever a separate people were enslaved, they were disdained or despised, whether they were different by country, religion, caste, race, or tribe. The Europeans who were enslaved in North Africa were despised and abused because they were Christians in a Muslim region of the world, where they were called Christian dogs. Race became the most visible difference between slaves and slave owners in the Western Hemisphere. As distinguished historian Daniel J. Borston put it, now for the first time in Western history, the status of slave coincided with the difference of race. To make racism the driving force behind slavery is to make a historically recent factor the cause of an institution which originated thousands of years earlier. This enshrinement of racism as an overarching causal factor accords far more with current instrumental agendas than with history. The form in which the story of slavery has reached most people today has been along the lines of the best-selling book and widely watched television miniseries, Roots, by Alex Haley. Challenged on the historical accuracy of Roots, Haley said, I tried to give my people a myth to live by. This instrumental use of history, or purported history, is open to the same objections as other instrumental myth-making. First is the objection to falsification itself, that the damage which this does to the general level of understanding and trust in a society is incalculable and can easily outweigh, in its long-run consequences especially, any immediate good that might be expected from an expedient taking of liberties with the truth. Second, even the short-run benefits are by no means clear. Has a sense of special grievance helped advance any people? Or has what happened in centuries past been a distraction and an incitement to counterproductive strife, much as territorial irredentism has been? Rather than debate current ideological agendas, we can try to determine what we can about the actual history of slavery, including how it ended. No institution of comparable age and worldwide scope has ever disappeared over almost the entire planet leaving so little awareness of how and why it vanished, or so little interest in that question. Volumes continue to be published about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, which, for all its greatness, did not encompass one-tenth as much of the world as the institution of slavery did. Archaeologists continue to excavate the ruins of ancient civilizations in Central America and the Middle East, while military historians pour through archives and examine ancient weapons to try to piece together the history of warfare. Yet remarkably little is written about one of the most momentous moral dramas in the history of the human species, the bitter worldwide struggle which lasted for more than a century to destroy the elaborate systems and institutions for the ownership and sale of human beings. While there is a sizable literature on the American Civil War, 
for all its staggering carnage and historic legacy within the United States, in an international perspective, it is only a small and highly atypical part of the story of the worldwide crusade against slavery. No other nation ended slavery in the same way as the United States did, and few ended it after so short a struggle, as history is measured. How and why did slavery end in most of the world? There were two major processes. Over the centuries, as more and more territories around the world consolidated into nation-states with their own armies and navies, raiding those territories to capture and enslave the people who lived within them became more hazardous in itself, and also risked military retaliation against the countries from which the raiders came. Thus, more and more peoples became off-limits to slave raiders over time. Put differently, the areas which remained subject to slave raiding over the centuries were primarily those where the people lived in smaller or weaker societies. Such societies continued to exist where it was difficult, for geographic or other reasons, to consolidate large areas under one government. This was true of the Balkans, the backwaters of Asia, and much of sub-Saharan Africa. By the early modern era, sub-Saharan Africa, with its numerous and severe geographic handicaps, was one of the last remaining areas from which vast numbers of people could be enslaved. Far from being targeted by Europeans for racial reasons, as some have claimed, Africa was resorted to as a source of large supplies of slaves only after centuries of Europeans enslaving other Europeans had been brought to an end by the consolidation of nations and empires on the European continent by internal shifts from slavery to serfdom in much of Europe, and by the Catholic Church's pressures against enslaving fellow Christians, which was by no means the same as the Church's saying that slavery, as such, was wrong. Similar consolidations of political units in parts of Asia led to a decline of slavery in those realms. While Africa became the main source of new slaves in later centuries, existing slaves continued to include peoples of many races living in many places around the world. Ending the slavery of all these peoples was a very difficult process, and one requiring deliberate and sustained action for many generations. Ironically, the anti-slavery ideology behind this process began to develop in 18th century Britain, at a time when the British Empire led the world in slave trading, and when the economy of most of its overseas colonies in the Western Hemisphere depended on slaves. Here again, the baffling present-day disregard of an international saga of strife, full of individual dramas as well as historic consequences, seems explicable only in terms of today's ideological agendas. While slavery was common to all civilizations, as well as to peoples considered uncivilized, only one civilization developed a moral revulsion against it, very late in its history, Western civilization. Today it seems so obvious that, as Abraham Lincoln said, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. But the hard fact is that for thousands of years, slavery was simply not an issue, even among the great religious thinkers or moral philosophers of civilizations around the world. We may wonder why it took 18 centuries after the Sermon on the Mount for Christians to develop an anti-slavery movement. But a more profound question is why not even the leading moralists in other civilizations rejected slavery at all. There is no evidence, according to a scholarly study, that slavery came under serious attack in any part of the world before the 18th century.
That is when it first came under attack in Europe. Themselves the leading slave traders of the 18th century, Europeans nevertheless became, in the 19th century, the destroyers of slavery around the world. Not just in European societies or European offshoot societies overseas, but in non-European societies as well, over the bitter opposition of Africans, Arabs, Asians, and others. Moreover, within Western civilization, the principal impetus for the abolition of slavery came first from very conservative religious activists, people who would today be called the religious right. Clearly, this story is not politically correct in today's terms. Hence, it is ignored, as if it never happened. Western and non-Western societies Slavery did not die out quietly of its own accord. It went down fighting to the bitter end, and it lost only because Europeans had gunpowder weapons first. The advance of European imperialism around the world marked the retreat of the slave trade, and then of slavery itself. The British stamped out slavery, not only throughout the British Empire, which included one-fourth of the world, whether measured in land or people, but also by its pressures and its actions against other nations. For example, the British Navy entered Brazilian waters in 1849 and destroyed Brazilian ships that had been used in the slave trade. The British government pressured the Ottoman Empire into banning the African slave trade and, later, threatened to start boarding Ottoman ships in the Mediterranean if that empire did not do a better job of policing the ban. Still later, Americans stamped out slavery in the Philippines, the Dutch stamped it out in Indonesia, the Russians in Central Asia, the French in their West African and Caribbean colonies, Germans in their East Africa colonies, often hanged slave traders on the spot when they caught them in the act. No non-Western nation or civilization shared this animosity towards slavery that began to develop in the Western world in the late 18th century, reached its peak in the 19th century, and continued to fuel the anti-slavery efforts that were still necessary in much of Africa and the Middle East on into the first half of the 20th century. This worldwide struggle went on for more than a century because the non-Western world in general resisted and evaded all efforts to get them to root out this institution that was an integral part of their economies and societies. When the British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire first raised the issue of abolishing slavery with the Sultan in 1840, he reported this response. I have been heard with extreme astonishment, accompanied with a smile at a proposition for destroying an institution closely interwoven with the frame of society in this country, and intimately connected with the law and with the habits and even the religion of all classes, from the Sultan himself on down to the lowest peasant. Similarly, the Maoris of New Zealand responded to comments on their enslavement of some fellow Polynesians on other islands by saying, We took possession in accordance with our customs and we caught all the people. Not one escaped. Some ran away from us. These we killed and others we killed. But what of that? It was in accordance with our customs. When British Foreign Secretary Palmerston sought in 1841 through his representative council, Atkins Hamilton, to get the ruler of Zanzibar to end the flourishing slave trade there, this was the response. When Palmerston continued to press for an end to the slave trade, Said pleaded that if he acceded to British demands, his subjects would withdraw their loyalty from him and support another claimant to the throne. And was he not looked up to by all Arabs generally 
as the person who should protect and guarantee for them their dearest interests, the right to carry on the slave trade? He reminded Hamilton that Arabs were not like the English and other European people who were always reading and writing and were unable to understand the anti-slavery viewpoint. The British obsession with it was quite inexplicable to them. In short, what was so patently wrong about slavery in the eyes of Western civilization of the past two centuries was almost incomprehensible to many non-Westerners. Eventually, some westernized elites or intellectuals in non-Western societies also became embarrassed about slavery, but these societies developed no such fervent anti-slavery movements as those which propelled successive European and European offshoot societies to ban this practice for themselves and to stamp it out, among others. In the Western world, hostility to slavery was by no means confined to elites. When a British ship stopped at Zanzibar in the 19th century, it was considered dangerous to let British sailors go ashore for fear that they would riot if they saw the slave market there. In the years leading up to the abolition of slavery in Brazil, soldiers and their officers no longer believed in the legitimacy of slavery and so dragged their feet when assigned the task of recapturing runaway slaves. Soldiers continued to be sent to places where slaves were on the loose, but were not afraid to express their unwillingness to capture fugitives. The commander of an army unit sent to a community in Sao Paulo early in 1888 agreed to maintain order, but openly declined to capture slaves. In places runaways were loitering on the roads, refusing to work. Army units sent to control them did nothing. Not all Brazilian soldiers refused orders to control or recapture escaped slaves, but there was enough opposition to this role that a formal request was made to the civil authorities by the military to relieve them of this distasteful duty. With public opinion increasingly hostile to the continuation of slavery, and many Brazilians keenly aware of, and painfully embarrassed by, the fact that their country was the last one in the Western world to still have slavery, the plantation owners were increasingly isolated, and some began freeing their slaves themselves in anticipation of official emancipation and in some cases, in hopes of retaining these workers as employees. Thus, when the official date of emancipation arrived in Brazil, most slaves were already free, either having been freed by plantation owners or having simply left the plantations on their own, securing the knowledge that the surrounding population was not likely to cooperate in their recapture and return. Still, when the official day of emancipation arrived, it was a cause of national celebration. The novelist, Machado de Assis, recalled that the celebrations following the passage of the Golden Law were the only instance of popular delirium that I can remember ever having seen. One Sao Paulo newspaper described the crowds that gathered to celebrate. To try to describe the splendor of that festival of joy, to tell everything that happened, falls beyond our abilities. Never has this capital seen such multitudinous and unanimous enthusiasm. Perhaps, at no other period of history, was the contrast between the Western and the non-Western world greater. Here was the scene when the Ottoman Empire announced the end of the slave trade. In 1855, when the Sultan's Furman was read out in Mecca and Jeddah, it caused a revolution. Turkish officials, including the Qadi, who read the Furman, were murdered, the garrison shut, and Mecca was in a state of revolt until the port repealed the obnoxious order. And when the governor-general of the Hejaz issued orders on 25th February 1860, 
forbidding the slave trade in all Turkish ports in the Red Sea, there was great excitement and fear of the recurrence of the 1855 violence. There was no Ottoman cruiser in the Red Sea capable of giving effect to this order, and Turkish officials were too frightened to enforce it. Although the slave trade was formally abolished in the Ottoman Empire, under pressure from the British government, slavery itself continued. As of 1891, the Imperial Palace purchased 11 slave girls for its harem, as others in the Ottoman Empire purchased women as concubines, typically white women from a region near the Caucasus and the Black Sea, known as Circassia, even though every nation in the Western world had by then outlawed slavery. Not only the Turks accepted such slavery, so did the Circassians. Mothers often groomed their daughters for this role and sold them into what was considered to be a desirable situation, at least by comparison with what was available in Circassia. British Foreign Secretary Palmerston said, The only complaint we have ever heard from the Circassians has been against our attempts to stop the traffic. Contrary to the myths to live by, created by Alex Haley and others, Africans were by no means the innocents portrayed in roots, baffled as to why white men were coming in and taking their people away in chains. On the contrary, the region of West Africa from which Kunta Kinte supposedly came was one of the great slave trading regions of the continent, before, during, and after the white man arrived. It was Africans who enslaved their fellow Africans, selling some of these slaves to Europeans or to Arabs, and keeping others for themselves. Even at the peak of the Atlantic slave trade, Africans retained more slaves for themselves than they sent to the Western Hemisphere. This pattern was not confined to West Africa, from which most slaves were sent to the Western Hemisphere. In East Africa, the Maasai were feared slave raiders, and other African tribes, either alone or in conjunction with Arabs, enslaved their more vulnerable neighbors. As late as 1891, it was reported that Manuema slavers had demoralized surrounding tribes, destroying crops, and famine reigned everywhere. Even in the early 20th century, Abyssinians were still raiding other Africans and carrying off slaves. It was 1922 before the British had gained sufficient control in Tanganyika to stamp out slavery there. Arabs were the leading slave raiders in East Africa, ranging over an area larger than all of Europe. The total number of slaves exported from East Africa during the 19th century has been estimated to be at least 2 million. Despite the impression created by Roots, during the era of the massive slave trade from West Africa, a white man was more likely to catch malaria in Africa than to catch slaves himself. The average life expectancy of a white man in the interior of Sub-Saharan Africa at that time was less than one year. By and large, Men from Europe or the Western Hemisphere came to the coasts of Africa, bought their slaves, and left as soon as possible. Even so, the death rates among the white crews of the ships carrying slaves to the Western Hemisphere were as high as the death rates among the slaves themselves. It was only much later, after quinine and other medical measures enabled Europeans to survive where there were tropical diseases, was it possible for them to invade Africa in force and establish empires there. But by then, the Atlantic slave trade had already been ended. During the era of that trade, Africa was largely ruled by Africans who established the conditions under which slave sales took place. 
the crew of a slave ship was in no position to defy African rulers and their armies by going out across the land and capturing people willy-nilly. The stronger African peoples captured and enslaved the weaker peoples. The same pattern found over the centuries in Europe, Asia, the Western Hemisphere, and Polynesia. In the Asomat, the Ngoni and Yao swaggered over and terrorized other tribes. In Uganda, the Baganda made life miserable for their neighbors, and the Nioro and Hima of Ankol enslaved Toro women and children. The Tutsi dominated the Hutu in Rwanda, the Maasai lorded it over the Kikuyu and Kamba, and the latter, in turn, held the Indorobo in a kind of serfdom. It was precisely the fact that Europeans, except for the Portuguese, seldom participated in the raids that captured and enslaved Africans that enabled most people in Europe and the Americas to remain oblivious to the traumatic experience that this was, with some Africans committing suicide to avoid capture and wives being whipped as they tried to cling to their husbands or children. Historian David Brian Davis pointed out that Europeans had little contact with the actual process of enslavement, and that as late as 1721, the Royal African Company asked its agents to investigate the modes of enslavement in the interior. Europeans typically saw only the end results, enslaved people being offered for sale on the coast. It was much the same story in the Ottoman Empire, where those who bought slaves had no idea what these slaves had been through before. Slavery was destroyed within the United States at staggering costs in blood and treasure. But the struggle was over within a few ghastly years of warfare. Nevertheless, the Civil War was the bloodiest war ever fought in the Western Hemisphere, and more Americans were killed in that war than in any other war in the country's history. But this was a highly atypical, indeed unique, way to end slavery. In most of the rest of the world, unremitting efforts to destroy the institution of slavery went on for more than a century on a thousand shifting fronts and in the face of determined and ingenious efforts to continue the trade of human beings. Within the British Empire, the abolition of slavery was accompanied by the payment of compensation to slave owners for what was legally the confiscation of their property. This cost the British government 20 million pounds, a huge sum in the 19th century, about 5% of the nation's annual output. A similar plan to have the federal government of the United States buy up the slaves and then set them free was proposed in Congress, but was never implemented. The costs of emancipating the millions of slaves in the United States would have been more than half the annual national output, but still less than the economic costs of the Civil War. Quite aside from the cost in blood and lives and the legacy of lasting bitterness in the South, growing out of its defeat and the widespread destruction it suffered during that conflict. While the British could simply abolish slavery in their Western Hemisphere colonies, they faced a more daunting and longer-lasting task of patrolling the Atlantic off the coast of Africa in order to prevent slave ships of various nationalities from continuing to supply slaves illegally. Even during the Napoleonic Wars, Britain continued to keep some of its warships on patrol off West Africa. Moreover, such patrols likewise tried to interdict the shipments of slaves from East Africa to the Indian Ocean, the Red Sea, and the Persian Gulf. Brazil capitulated to British demands that it end its slave trade after being publicly humiliated by British warships that seized and destroyed slave ships within Brazil's own waters. In 1873, 
two British cruisers appeared off the coast of Zanzibar and threatened to blockade the island unless the slave market there shut down. It was shut down. It would be hard to think of any other crusade pursued so relentlessly for so long by any nation at such mounting costs without any economic or other tangible benefit to itself. These costs included bribes paid to Spain and Portugal to get their cooperation with the effort to stop the international slave trade, and the costs of maintaining naval patrols and of resettling freed slaves, not to mention dangerous frictions with France and the United States, among other countries. Captains of British warships who detained vessels suspected of carrying slaves were legally liable if those vessels turned out to have no slaves on board. The human costs were also large. The heavy drain, physical and mental, in keeping squadrons on the East African coast was reflected in the loss of 282 officers and men in the 10 years 1875 to 1885. And this did not include those invalidated home. Naval personnel, racked by fever, sunstroke, and dysentery, were forced to retire prematurely and live on a small pittance. The cost of upkeep of the squadron over the 20 years prior to 1890 was estimated at 4 million sterling, and this did not take into account the large amount of work imposed on consular and judicial staff in Zanzibar in trying cases and dealing with reports, etc. Even so, the results were slow in coming. More streamlined slave ships were designed in hopes of being able to outrun the ships of the Royal Navy in the Atlantic. Nevertheless, the dogged persistence of the British eventually reduced the shipment of slaves across the Atlantic and across the waters of the Islamic world. Although the French flag was for many years widely used as protection from the boarding of ships on the high seas by the British Navy, even by slave traders who were neither French nor authorized to fly the French flag, eventually France itself turned against slavery, outlawed the institution, and sent some of its own warships to patrol the Atlantic off the coast of Africa to intercept and deter the shipment of slaves to the Western Hemisphere. The American flag was likewise so used, and the United States, like France, eventually turned against the slave trade and sent warships to join the Atlantic patrols to interdict slave shipments. Although by 1860, the Atlantic slave trade had been effectively stopped, the slave trade from East Africa across the Indian Ocean, the Red Sea, and the Persian Gulf took longer to be reduced significantly. Off the east coast of Africa, smaller Arab vessels called dhows hugged the coastlines in waters too shallow for the British warships to enter. One British commodore estimated that he captured one dhow for every eight that escaped. Nevertheless, during the period from 1866 to 1869, 129 slave vessels were captured and 3,380 slaves were freed. When the threat of being boarded seemed imminent, the Arabs would throw slaves overboard to drown rather than have them be found on board, which could lead to British seizure of the vessel and punishment of those who manned it. The worst that could befall the slaves was when the slaver was overhauled by a British cruiser and they might then be flung overboard to dispose of all evidence. Devereux mentions a case where the Arabs, when pursued by an English cruiser, cut the throats of 24 slaves and threw them overboard. Cologne also states that Arabs would not hesitate to knock slaves on the head and throw them overboard to avoid capture. Because there were only a few naval ships available to cover a vast expanse of water in this region, 
British warships would often launch smaller boats to engage the Arab slave dows. In these cases, as one study put it, the slave traffickers frequently did not hesitate to attack boat crews in defense of their profits. Battles between the Arabs' vessels and the smaller British craft were especially likely when the larger ships that launched them were too far away to reach the scene in time to join the battle. In other cases, the Arabs fled even from the smaller British vessels. An episode in 1866 was typical. On 26 April 1866, the Penguin set out after a dhow and fired several shots in an effort to make the crew come to. When the dhow failed to lower its sail, Gartorth felt certain that she was a slaver and ceased firing for the sake of the slaves on board. However, he managed to close with the dhow, which then made for the rocks through a heavy surf. By the time the ship's boats could be lowered to follow, the Arab crew had fled, but the pounding surf made any attempt by the slavers to salvage the human cargo too dangerous. To their horror, the boat crew found that they too could not reach the dhow, which was rapidly filling with water, drowning the slaves. The boat officer decided that he could not risk coming in close to the dhow, but several of the crewmen of the cutter recklessly dived in and swam through the surf to the dhow. In a remarkable display of courage, the sailors managed to bring 28 of the slaves back to the boat. But the dhow appeared to have had more than 200 slaves on board, and most died in the pounding waves. In another episode, the Arabs' ruthlessness toward the slaves was further revealed. When the Daphne's cutter captured a dhow with 156 slaves on board, many were found to be in the final stages of starvation and dysentery. One woman was brought out of the dhow with a month-old infant in her arms. The baby's forehead was crushed, and when she was asked how the injury had happened, she explained to the ship's interpreter that as the boat came alongside, the baby began to cry. One of the dowmen, fearing that the sailors would hear the cries, picked up a stone and crushed the child's head. This was not a unique act. British missionary and explorer David Livingstone related a similar incident on land. One woman, who was unable to carry both her load and young child, had the child taken from her and saw its brains dashed out on a stone. Dr. Livingstone also reported having nightmares for weeks after encountering Arab slave traders and their victims. Not only was this Christian missionary shocked by the brutality of the Arab slave traders, so was Muhammad Ali, the ruler of Egypt, who was a battle-hardened military commander. None of this means that the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade should be ignored, downplayed, or excused. Nor have they been. A vast literature has detailed the vile conditions under which slaves from Africa lived and died during their voyages to the Western Hemisphere. But the much less publicized slave trade to the Islamic countries had even higher mortality rates en route, as well as involving larger numbers of people over the centuries even though the Atlantic slave trade had higher peaks while it lasted. By a variety of accounts, most of the slaves who were marched across the Sahara toward the Mediterranean died on the way. While these were mostly women and girls, the males faced a special danger, castration to produce the eunuchs in demand as harem attendants in the Islamic world. Because castration was forbidden by Islamic law, the operation tended to be performed usually crudely, in the hinterlands, before the slave caravans reached places within the effective control of the Ottoman Empire. The great majority of those operated on died as a result. 
But the price of eunuchs was so much higher than the price of other slaves that the practice was still profitable on net balance. The British Governor General of the Sudan, C.G. Gordon, estimated that between 1875 after which the slave trade flourished again. British control in the region was firmly re-established in 1898 by the crushing victory of troops led by Lord Kitchener at Omdurman, and including a young officer named Winston Churchill. On the issue of slavery, it was essentially Western civilization against the world. At the time, Western civilization had the power to prevail against all other civilizations. That is how and why slavery was destroyed as an institution in almost the whole world. But it did not happen all at once or even within a few decades. When the British finally stamped out slavery in Tanganyika in 1922, it was more than half a century after the Emancipation Proclamation in the United States, and vestiges of slavery still survived in parts of Africa into the 21st century. The unique position of the Western world in the history and especially the destruction of slavery, need not imply that there was unanimity within the West on this institution. In addition to whites who defended the enslavement of Africans on racial grounds, or who opposed general emancipation on social grounds, there were many whites, and even blacks, who defended slavery as a matter of self-interest as slave owners. Although most black owners of slaves in the United States were only nominal owners of members of their own families, there were thousands of other blacks in the antebellum South who were commercial slave owners, just like their white counterparts. An estimated one-third of the free persons of color in New Orleans were slave owners, and thousands of these slave owners volunteered to fight for the Confederacy during the Civil War. Black slave owners were even more common in the Caribbean. In short, there were many defenders of slavery in the West, even in the 19th century. And outside the West, slavery was too widely accepted to require defense. The Moral Dimensions of Slavery If slavery is not morally wrong, it is hard to imagine what else could possibly be wrong. Yet when Lincoln expressed this view, which was gaining currency in his time, it was a belief less than a century old in the West and still virtually non-existent outside the West. In ancient times, Aristotle had attempted to justify slavery, but many other Western and non-Western philosophers alike took it so much for granted that they felt no need to explain or justify it at all. Some Muslims regarded attempts to abolish slavery as impious, since the Quran itself accepted slavery as an institution while trying to ameliorate the lot of the slave. Only in the American South did a large apologetic literature develop seeking to justify slavery, because only there was slavery under such large-scale and sustained attacks on moral grounds as to require a response. While slavery was referred to in antebellum America as a peculiar institution, in an international perspective and in the long view of history, it was not this institution that was peculiar, but the principles of American freedom 
with which slavery was in such obvious and irreconcilable conflict. If all men were created equal, as the Declaration of Independence proclaimed, then the only way to justify slavery was by depicting those enslaved as not fully men. A particularly virulent form of racism thus arose from a particularly desperate need to defend slavery against telling attacks that invoke the fundamental principles of the American Republic. Nowhere else in the world was slavery in such dire straits ideologically, and nowhere else did racism reach such heights, or depths, in defense of the institution. As a noted study of Brazil observed, the defenders of slavery on clearly racist grounds were as rare among public supporters of slavery in Brazil as they were common in the United States. Brazil was not a democracy, and so had no such ideological contradictions to overcome. In short, racism was neither necessary nor sufficient for slavery, whose origins antedated racism by centuries. Racism was a result, not a cause, of slavery, and not all societies that enslaved people of another race became pervaded with racism to the extent that the American South did. The stark contrast between the slave and the free, which made slavery a moral issue in the Western world in modern times, was simply not there for most societies and for most of history in most of the world. In hierarchical societies, where people were born into their stations in life, ranging through many gradations from royalty to bondage. Slavery was simply the bottom rung on a ladder based on the accident of birth, one notch below the serf, who was bought and sold with the land, instead of individually. This is not to say that being a slave was a matter of indifference. A horror of becoming a slave has been widespread around the world, but this is wholly different from a reluctance to enslave others. Christians, Muslims, and Jews all forbade the enslavement of their own respective fellow religionists, though they did not always honor even this ban, but all considered it permissible to enslave others. Clergy themselves had slaves, and both Christian monasteries in Europe and Buddhist monasteries in Asia owned slaves. Even Sir Thomas More's fictional ideal society, Utopia, had slavery. It was not until the late 18th century that there was even an intellectual movement, much less a political movement, for the abolition of slavery. And those in these movements were distinctly in the minority, even in the West, and had no counterparts outside the West. What was historically unusual was the emergence in the late 18th century of a strong moral sense that slavery was so wrong that Christians could not in good conscience enslave anyone or countenance the continuation of this institution among themselves or others. Nor was this view confined to religious leaders or congregations. Adam Smith in Britain and Montesquieu in France were among the secular intellectuals who wrote against slavery in the 18th century. Slavery was one of a number of long-standing institutions and traditions which were being questioned in the 18th century in the West. Before then, both secular and religious philosophers going back to Plato had seen the mundane physical world as being far less important than the ideal or spiritual world, so that being right and free in one's mind was more important than one's faith in the physical world. Dissipating one's energies trying to reform the practices of a sinful world was considered less important than bringing one's own soul into line with spiritual imperatives. To the religious, the world of the here and now was a transient thing, a prelude and a testing ground for the world that really mattered. 
the world of eternity. However, as a humanistic philosophy began to affect both secular and religious thought, what happened in the mundane physical world began to assume greater importance than it had before in the eyes of intellectuals, philosophers, and religious leaders. As the fate of human beings in the here and now loomed larger as a moral concern, the fate of slaves became part of the intellectual and moral agenda of the times. Over the centuries, established religious institutions in the West, notably the Catholic Church, but later including also established Protestant denominations, had made their peace with the institution of slavery as a fact of life and produced traditional rationales to reconcile it with the message of Christianity. Now these institutions, traditions, and rationales came under fire from within, as well as outside, the religious community across a broad front, of which slavery was just one battleground. Religious minorities, such as the Quakers or the Evangelicals within the Anglican Church, could not simply rely on religious tradition and authority because their very existence was based on a questioning of, and in some cases a break with, those traditions and authorities. These insurgents had to think independently about slavery, as about other things, and derive their own conclusions, as most people do not have to think through things which have been accepted facts of life for centuries. The rising class of secular intellectuals in the West could even less rely on the authority of established religious institutions. This did not mean that either secular or religious insurgents were automatically anti-slavery. What it meant was that they both had to evolve some intellectually and morally defensible position because they could not simply base themselves on existing beliefs or practices. Different individuals resolved the issues differently, but out of this process came some who began to see slavery as an intolerable evil. Quakers were the first religious group to find slavery morally intolerable, a threat to their own eternal salvation rather than simply a temporal misfortune of others. Yet even the Quakers did not arrive at this conclusion all at once. In the 17th and early 18th centuries, there were Quaker plantation owners in the West Indies and Quaker slave traders operating from London, Philadelphia, and Newport, Rhode Island. As late as 1705, most of the leaders of the Philadelphia Quakers owned slaves. However, as anti-slavery sentiment grew among the Quakers, Slave ownership among these leaders declined to 10% by 1756. Then, just two years later, the Philadelphia Quakers banned the ownership of slaves by its members. In England as well, Quakers were the first to require members of their congregations to cease being slave owners. Evangelicals in the Anglican Church, notably William Wilberforce in Parliament, joined the Quakers and took the issue to the general public with a decades-long political struggle to get the British government to ban the trading of slaves. Only optimists thought this possible at the time, and even the leaders of the anti-slavery movement did not at first attempt the direct abolition of the institution of slavery itself, hoping instead that stopping the buying and selling of human beings would dry up the source and cause slavery as an institution to wither on the vine. At this juncture in history, Britain was the world's largest slave trader, and the powerful vested interests which this created were able to roundly defeat early attempts to get Parliament to ban the trade. In the long run, however, such powerful opposition to the proposed ban, combined with equal tenacity on the other side, simply dragged out the political struggle for decades, making ever wider circles of people aware of the issue. 
Something that had never been a public issue before now became a subject of inescapable and heated controversy for years on end. Slavery could no longer be accepted as simply one of those facts of life that most people do not bother to think about. The long, drawn-out political controversy meant that more and more people had to think about it, and many who began to think about slavery turned against it. Eventually, such strong feelings were aroused among the British public that anti-slavery petitions with unprecedented numbers of signatures poured into Parliament from around the country, from people in all walks of life, until the mounting political pressures forced not only a banning of the international slave trade in 1808, but eventually swept the anti-slavery forces on beyond their original goals toward the direct abolition of the institution of slavery itself. Nor was this a transient phenomenon. For more than a century, these political forces were so unremitting that no British government of any party could ignore them, and even British politicians and colonial officials with no personal sense of a need to ban slavery were nevertheless forced further in that direction by political pressures. Not only were Britons forbidden to trade or hold slaves, the British Navy intercepted slave ships from other nations on the high seas, set the slaves free, and confiscated the ships. Only Britain's overwhelming power made this possible, and even then not against a powerful nation like France, but only extraordinary political pressures at home made it necessary. Moreover, this was a moral crusade continually fanned by reports from British missionaries in Africa and elsewhere, as well as by anti-slavery sentiments from other sources. Queen Victoria told Harriet Beecher Stowe that she had wept when she read Uncle Tom's Cabin, Yet one of the signs of our own times is that intellectuals have made desperate but futile efforts to depict the worldwide British anti-slavery crusade as somehow motivated by economic self-interest, rather than by the kinds of moral imperatives activating the kinds of people that today's intellectuals find hard to understand. At the time, however, John Stuart Mill said that the British, for the last half-century, have spent annual sums equal to the revenue of a small kingdom in blockading the Africa coast, for a cause in which we not only had no interest, but which was contrary to our own pecuniary interest. While Britain spearheaded the anti-slavery movement in the world, the 19th century saw anti-slavery feelings spread until they became common throughout Western civilization, and only in Western civilization. By 1888, every country in the Western Hemisphere had abolished slavery, as had all European and European offshoot nations around the world. Yet attempts to abolish slavery in the non-Western world provoked armed uprisings within the Ottoman Empire. And elsewhere, peoples unable to directly mount challenges on the battlefield nevertheless engaged in massive evasions and concealments of their continued trade in human beings. After the open slave market in Istanbul was shut down, slaves continued to be smuggled in, often at night and in small groups, from the Caucasus and from around the Black Sea, among other places. Suppressing the slave trade across the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea was much harder and took much longer than suppressing the Atlantic slave trade. While slaves were transported across the Atlantic in large ships packed with their human cargoes, slaves were carried in smaller and more numerous vessels, along with rice, fish, and other merchandise, from East Africa to the Islamic world. British naval patrols were overwhelmed by the task of sorting out which of the innumerable Arab vessels were carrying slaves at a given time and place, 
and these patrols were never able to intercept more than a fraction of the slaves being shipped out of East Africa to the Islamic world of the Middle East and North Africa. Moreover, such success as the British had on the high seas led to a shifting of more of the slave trade to land, and especially to inland areas away from the ports and coastal outposts where British naval power could be exerted. With the passage of time, however, especially as other European powers began to adopt anti-slavery policies, not only for themselves, but for other nations that they conquered or influenced, the slave trade was forced to retreat further, though not to surrender. Moreover, the retreat of the slave trade did not mean the abolition of slavery itself. A number of European nations, as well as the United States, officially banned the international slave trade in the early 19th century, and treaties among them decades later provided various means of making the ban more effective. But while nations could deter other nations from slave trading, it was much more difficult to deter freelance pirates or freelance marauders on land from capturing and selling people wherever a vulnerable source of supply might exist. Thus, North African pirates raided the Mediterranean coast in the 16th and 17th centuries, while pirates in Asia raided islands in the Philippines and sold the people captured to buyers in Borneo, the Celebes, and other islands in the Pacific. The Spanish colonial authorities who controlled the Philippines organized resistance against these pirates, but it was not until the United States took over the Philippines in 1898 that slave raiding was stopped. In the French colony of Senegal, slavery itself was still thriving as late as 1904, though the slave trade had been reduced earlier. The Portuguese did not put an end to the slave trade in their colony in Guinea until just before the First World War. Where European colonial military forces were spread thin and relied on indirect rule through indigenous authorities, as in much of Africa, local European colonial officials often found it expedient to turn a blind eye to the continued existence of slavery and the slave trade among the indigenous peoples who saw nothing wrong with it and depended on it for a livelihood. However, this simply provided more fuel for exposés by European missionaries and journalists, leading eventually to still more pressure from the home governments to stamp out slavery. As one British historian put it, public opinion would not tolerate even vestigial slave trading in an area controlled by Britain. One side of the difference between the history of slavery in Western and non-Western societies is the very different language used to describe the very different processes by which slavery was ended in these societies. For the European offshoot societies of the Western Hemisphere, the term was the abolition of slavery, while for Africa and the Middle East, the term was the decline of slavery a much more uneven and protracted process in which local peoples continued the practice whenever and wherever they could escape the scrutiny or the power of European imperial authorities. In Asia as well, slavery continued to exist in backwaters and hinterlands on into the early 20th century. Writing in the last decade of the 20th century, a scholar observed, Slavery in Southeast Asia is not a remote historical phenomenon. Laws certainly have prohibited private ownership of persons for a century or more. Yet in more hills and islands of the region, one still encounters people who admit to being slaves or the children of slaves. Even independent non-Western nations were pressured to end slavery, both directly and by a desire not to be embarrassed in the eyes of the world. Meaning, during the 19th century, 
mostly the powerful European world. In short, where European and European offshoot societies held direct and effective power in the 19th century, slavery was simply abolished. But where the Western world's power and influence were mediated, reduced, or otherwise operated only indirectly, their non-Western peoples were able to fight a long war of attrition and evasion in defense of slavery, a war which they had, however, largely lost by the middle of the 20th century, but which they had not yet wholly lost even at the beginning of the third millennium, when vestiges of slavery remained in parts of Africa. Despite all this, those with an instrumental view of history have managed to turn things upside down and present slavery as an evil of our society, or of the white race, or of Western civilization. One could as well do the same with murder or cancer, simply by ignoring these evils in other societies and incessantly denouncing their presence in the West. Yet what was peculiar about the West was not that it participated in the worldwide evil of slavery, but that it later abolished that evil not only in Western societies, but also in other societies subject to Western control or influence. This was possible only because the anti-slavery movement coincided with an era in which Western power and hegemony were at their zenith, so that it was essentially European imperialism which ended slavery. This idea might seem shocking, not because it does not fit the facts, but because it does not fit the prevailing vision of our time. Selective Moral Indignation Many who are selectively indignant about the immorality of slavery in American society or in Western civilization do not merely pass over in silence the larger-scale slavery in other parts of the world, but sometimes even attempt to apologize for the latter. The argument often used by apologists for slavery in the antebellum American South, that slaves were treated like members of the family, has often been uncritically accepted for African or Middle Eastern societies, though dismissed out of hand for slavery in the United States. Some of the forms of involuntary servitude in non-Western societies have even been said to not have been really slavery, though scholars have differed among themselves on the definition of a slave. The treatment of slaves has varied enormously, usually according to the kinds of work that slaves did. Around the world, plantation slaves have been almost universally treated worse than slaves used as domestic servants, for example. Given that plantation slavery was more common in the Western Hemisphere than in the Ottoman Empire, where slaves were more likely to be domestic servants, an argument could be made that the treatment of slaves in some societies was in general worse than in others. However, the high mortality rates and low reproduction rates of slaves in the Islamic countries should caution against accepting self-serving arguments that slaves were treated like members of the family in that part of the world, any more than in the American South. The absence of a critical literature or an anti-slavery movement outside the West left the abuses of slaves in non-Western countries without the kind of exposure or denunciation that such abuses provoked in European and European offshoot societies. Even so, terrible mortality rates were known to exist among slaves in Egyptian salt mines or among slaves in Iraq. For all the domestic slavery of Africa, there were also slave plantations in East Africa and on the island of Zanzibar, and some African and Asian slave owners used their slaves as human sacrifices in religious ceremonies, as did the Mayans in the Western Hemisphere. Europeans enslaved by North Africans were often used as galley slaves, which could be killing work. 
But slaves or former slaves in non-Western countries did not have an audience for stories of their oppressions comparable to that of slaves or former slaves in the United States, where the experiences of Frederick Douglass and other former slaves were widely publicized outside the South. The lone exception would be the narratives of European slaves in North Africa after they were ransomed or escaped back to Europe, or the stories told by the smaller number of Americans who were enslaved in North Africa and then rescued by the U.S. Navy in the early 19th century. But the audiences for their stories were in the West, not in the Islamic countries where they had been enslaved. Moreover, the stories of white slaves in the Islamic world were of interest only in the West of their time, not in the West of our time, when such experiences are largely passed over in silence, like other historical facts that do not fit today's visions and agendas. Direct observation of the treatment of slaves was less common with domestic slaves living behind walls or galley slaves hidden in the bowels of ships, as distinguished from plantation slaves working out in open fields. However, what was directly observable in the Islamic world were the slave caravans which marched vast numbers of human beings from their homes where they had been captured to the places where they would be sold, hundreds of miles away, often after spending months crossing the burning sands of the Sahara. The death toll on these marches exceeded even the horrific toll on packed slave ships crossing the Atlantic. Slaves who could not keep up with the caravans were abandoned in the desert and left to die a lingering death from heat, thirst, and hunger. Thousands of human skeletons were strewn along one Saharan slave road alone, mostly the skeletons of young women and girls who were more in demand than men in much of the Islamic world. These skeletons tended to cluster in the vicinity of wells, suggesting their last desperate efforts to reach water. A letter from an Ottoman official in 1849 referred to 1,600 black slaves dying of thirst on their way to Libya. It has been estimated that, for every slave to reach Cairo alive, several died on the way. Whether or not the survivors were later treated better or worse than slaves in the Western Hemisphere after reaching their final destinations is by no means the whole story. While much of the history of the treatment of slaves has been presented as a history of the treatment of African slaves, the treatment of European slaves in North Africa and elsewhere was by no means benign. For example, this was the scene in 18th century Algiers as newly captured European slaves were paraded through town. Since the arrival of new slaves was a sign of prosperity and an occasion of civic pride for all the townsfolk, the resident Turks, Moors, Jews, and renegades all turned out to cheer and taunt the newcomers. Local children especially followed the slaves as they shuffled along, loudly humiliating them, and sometimes threw refuse at them. The newly captured men's heads and beards were roughly shaved bare as part of the demoralization process to break their spirit, and slaves of either sex could be stripped naked for sale at auction. Most of the female slaves were used for domestic work, but the men tended to be used for work requiring strength, including the brutal and degrading work of galley slaves. When the ship was idle, Slaves who needed to relieve themselves could make their way to the opening at the hull side of their bench, known as the Borda, dragging their part of the chain and presumably climbing over their sleeping companions. The only liberty that is given us in the galley, recalled Louis Marat, is to go to this place when we have occasion. This, however, many slaves were apparently too exhausted or dispirited to do, and often ended up simply fouling themselves where they sat. The resulting stench as many observers agreed, was beyond belief. But besides the fumes in which they labored, the shackled Geati were also tormented by rats, fleas, bedbugs, and other parasites. 
In the middle of the 16th century, galleys propelled by the rowing of slaves were common in the Mediterranean, among both Europeans and their Islamic neighbors and enemies. In their epic naval battle of Lepanto in 1571, an estimated 80,000 rowers propelled the galleys of the warring powers, and these rowers were mostly slaves. The need for galley slaves later declined as Europeans first began to rely on sails for power, so that by the late 1600s, galley slaves were found primarily in vessels from North Africa and the Middle East. Later, as sails became more common on Mediterranean vessels from the Islamic countries as well, the hideous work of galley slaves also declined. While North African pirates enslaved Europeans primarily from the countries around the Mediterranean, they occasionally ranged much farther afield. Some of these pirates sailed into the English Channel and even into the Thames estuary. A 17th century British parliamentary report said, The fishermen are afraid to put to sea, and we are forced to keep continual watch on all our coasts. Nevertheless, Algerians were estimated to have captured more than 350 British ships between 1672 and 1682, which would mean that they enslaved a few hundred Britons annually. Earlier, in 1627, these pirates ranged even farther afield and raided Iceland, carrying off nearly 400 people into bondage. As late as the early 19th century, Barbary pirates captured American ships in the high seas and enslaved their crews. The phrase, to the shores of Tripoli, is in the U.S. Marine Corps hymn because Marines were part of a naval expedition sent to rescue hundreds of Americans from bondage in North Africa and serve as a warning against further pirate attacks on American ships. Not all the captured Europeans became slaves. Some were ransomed, as were Americans. After a successful raid on a European coast, the pirates sometimes sailed out of sight and then returned a day or two later under a white flag to offer to sell some of their captives back to their families. This was especially effective when the captives were children or youths who might be brought before their parents in the custody of a fearsome and leering moor to leave no doubt what awaited them in slavery perhaps even before they arrived in Barbary. The story of how human beings treat other human beings when they have unbridled power over them is seldom a pretty story, or even a decent story, regardless of the color of the people involved. When the roles were reversed, Africans did not treat Europeans any better than Europeans treated Africans. Neither can be exempted from moral condemnation applied to the other. Anachronistic Morality Moral principles may be timeless, but moral choices can be made only among the options actually available at particular times and places. By the time the existence of slavery became an issue in the Western world of the late 18th century, the question was no longer whether such an institution should have been created in the first place, but what to do now that both the institution and millions of people brought from Africa by that institution were already inside Western societies, such as the newly created United States. It was possible to abolish the institution, but it was not possible to abolish the people. That simple, inescapable fact underlay the tangled and tortuous history of the issue of slavery in 19th century America, where circumstances made the moral issue more acute than in most other Western nations, while it was no moral issue at all outside the West. Deep-rooted prejudices entertained by the whites, Thomas Jefferson said, and 10,000 recollections by the blacks of the injuries they have sustained. All right, there. That was part one. Now, y'all cue up part two. We're going to keep this thing going.